As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. show hosted by me, Nicole Auerbach. I'm joined today, as I always am, by the athletic senior writer, Chris Vanini. Chris, hello. Nicole, good to be here. Basketball is in the rear view. The Masters is on. We've officially jumped forward into spring. We have, and I've decided to be more invested than ever before in the Masters and actually watch before Sunday. Now that I'm a golfer, you know, I can like really, really appreciate the, uh, the art of golf that is happening on my television set right now. That's fair. That's fair. We're going to have to play in, in May. I think you and I are going to try to get together and play. Yes, that is the goal. I need to get out. It's starting to get a little bit nice in Chicago, so hopefully I'll get out there soon. Also very excited to hear from our pal Brody Miller, who's covering his first Masters. So excited to yes. read him this week on The Athletic, but also get to hear about the experience. Um, you hear him on this feed, so just a friendly reminder to be should be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on the Andy Staples Show and Friends feed. You'll hear Brody, you'll hear Ubbin, you'll hear Andy, Ari. They've always got something cooking, even throughout the offseason, and there's news. So be sure to hang with us, even though we are in the offseason. On today's episode of Power Hour, we will break down everything you need to know in college football in an hour or less. So Chris, we'll dive in. We'll start, as we always do, with the Power Five in true Power Hour fashion. We give ourselves about a minute to cover one of the hottest topics in college football before the buzzer sounds, and it's time to move on to the next. I will let you go first. Number one, Auburn head coach Hugh Freeze brought up the idea of instead of intra-squad spring games, you have two teams scrimmage against each other. This is an idea that's been brought up in the past. Freeze mentioned how could have schools like Alabama and Auburn play schools like UAB and Troy, potentially raise some money for charity. I was actually at UAB this week, kind of when these comments made the rounds, and Trent Dilfer was like, yes, absolutely, I want to do this. He went on TV and said the same thing later in the day. Uh, But it's not allowed by NCAA rules. Uh, You're you're not allowed to have inter-squad scrimmages in the spring. However, Division II did change its rules this year 
to allow one such scrimmage between two different teams in the spring. Uh, we will get into this more in happy hour, but this is something that uh, got a lot of people talking. So do you think we'll actually ever get to see it? I, I, I want to say no, but TV often wins out on these things, and I think TV would have interest in this. I would like to see a couple of schools try this. I, I know we've talked about it, and for so many schools, it's a glorified practice, if even a glorified scrimmage at best. Um, and, and I also understand why a lot of places wouldn't want to do this. If you're the group of five school or an FCS school doing this, one of your players pops off, then do they immediately hop in the portal and go somewhere bigger? If you're the power five school, do you worry about injuries and what if you don't look great playing in that game? Does it just cause some unrest in the fan base? I, like, I get all the reasons not to do it. I would love to see a couple schools try it just to see and if they're in a position where they feel like this would be worth the the effort. Uh, I would love to see it. I, I don't think it would, like, catch on and be widespread, but I think it would be interesting if it were to be tested out. We will get into this more later in the show, but I don't think Hugh Freeze quite realized the politics of Alabama in football when he suggested Alabama play somebody like Troy or UAB, something that Alabama absolutely will not do. Uh, in case you know how football works, uh, those teams do generally do not like to play the group of five teams in that state. Uh, Nick Saban did say, I want to say a year or so ago, that he'd be open to the idea, but they would play like an Alabama state, an HBCU type of situation. So uh, I, I don't think it's going over exactly the same way in, in Tuscaloosa specific to the teams. But again, good idea, bad idea. We'll get into that later. Number two, there is another lawsuit to pay attention to. Um, this is filed by the same lawyers who beat the NCAA in the Supreme Court with the Alston case, which everyone is pretty familiar with now. It's basically a direct follow-up to the Alston case. So the Alston ruling was pretty narrow. It was about the NCAA trying to cap academic-related benefits. And they basically said, nope, that's that's not allowed. That's unconstitutional. So that's why athletes get what are called like Alston payments, Alston awards, and it's basically up to about $6,000 per athlete per year that are related to academics. So it could be a minimum GPA. It could be something else. Like It's up to each school to determine what they what the threshold is and then also if they're paying them out and what the, the, the rewards are. So the lawsuit that was filed this week, which I wrote about on The Athletic, it was filed. Um, Ch uh, Chubba Hubbard and Kira McCarroll are listed as the plaintiffs. Um, and it's basically saying that if the schools, Oklahoma State, Auburn, if these schools are now paying athletes for these Alston Awards, these payments related to academic requirements or thresholds, whatever, well, then there's a bunch of athletes that should have been getting paid for these payments before the Supreme Court ruling. So with these with these types of lawsuits, they can only go back four years. So it's dated back to April 1st, 2019. And it's basically all of the athletes who play sports at schools that now are able to get these academic payments, the, the Alston Awards, and so theoretically would have been schools that would have done this sooner if they could have. And the argument was that if you didn't have, you know, these these schools and the NCAA colluding to not allow them to do this, 
well, there would have been competition. There would have been schools rushing to offer these awards, which is what happened after they became allowed to do that. And according to the lawsuit and the lawyers, there's more than 50 schools in Division One that allow or are paying out Alston Awards. So this is a lawsuit that is filed against the NCAA and against the Power Five conferences, not individual schools. But they're trying to be it's trying to be a class action suit on behalf of basically every athlete who, if they played right now, would be eligible for Alston Awards, but weren't, you know, uh, dating all the way back to, to April 1st, 2019. So it's a direct follow up. And because this was a case that was nine nothing from the Supreme Court, they think that this is a pretty straightforward follow up case, too, because it's not like you can relitigate what was actually decided. It's basically just saying, well, if you believe this and you did, then shouldn't these athletes also be eligible to get it? Yeah, I'm glad that the specifics of that were important because there's a misconception out there from a lot of people that the Alston case created NIL. That is not at all what happened. The Alston case was about giving education-related benefits to players from the schools. That could be money. What was it, like more than $5,000 or something like that for any academic benchmark a school wants to set, but also computers and, and stuff like that. That's what it was about. But like you said, only about... 50 or so schools since this went through are actually doing that and paying the money to players that they could. So I'm, I'm very curious where this goes because if a school isn't paying it now, then technically I would think they wouldn't have to back pay the athletes that they're no, they, they, either. No, they, well, they wouldn't unless they do it between now and whenever there's discovery. And as this lawsuit continues onward, their point is that the fact that people are rushing to do it, says that they would have rushed to do it if they'd been allowed to previously without these this rule that they believe, you know, and the Supreme Court found to be um, a violation of antitrust law. So it's it's interesting that it's also like these are just one of another challenges that they're facing because they're also dealing with the idea of, you know, back payments related to NIL earnings related to the House lawsuit mm-hmm. and then. The Johnson lawsuit is the one about hourly wages that athletes are mischaracterized as student athletes and not employees. So there's there's just a lot of different lawsuits to keep track of. And here is another just another pressure point on the NCAA and its member schools and the Power Five conferences in particular that could end up costing quite a bit of money. We just don't know. We don't know exactly how many athletes would be included um, and you know, I talked to Jeffrey Kessler, who is who is involved in this case as well, and he was basically saying, you know, you, you need to continue advancing this and go to Discovery to find out how many other schools there are and what exactly, like, the policies are for how they determine who makes, you know, the money through the Alston Awards. Yeah, and for us in the media, we love Discovery. So bring as much out in the public that, <laughs> that we want to see. Uh, number three, Nebraska is bringing back Frank Solich. He will be honored at the spring game on April 22nd. He's a former Nebraska fullback, a longtime assistant coach, and the head coach. And he was famously uh, fired after a subpar by elite Nebraska standards head coaching tenure. And Nebraska has, football has never been the same since. Uh, This is notable. Frank Solich has not been back to Nebraska, to, to the campus, basically since then. I interviewed him in... 2018 or 2019 I went down and saw him at Ohio and he was going back to Omaha to receive some award 
uh, might have been the Tom Osborne Award, I think, but he had not been back to Lincoln, back to, to there, where he has so much history. It, it really, really bothered him that he was fired. And for a long time, Nebraska, people around Nebraska have wanted to bring him back. I saw Scott Frost at the 2018 Coaches Convention talking to Frank Solich and saying, hey, we want to bring you back. We want to honor you. We want to do these these types of things. So it's finally happening. I'm sure Trev Alberts has the athletic director played a role. And, and also Matt Rule, who's the new head coach, who always does a really good job of ingratiating himself into the new culture. So uh, it's finally happening. Frank Solich is finally coming back to Nebraska. Yes, very cool to see an early cheers uh, if we could add a last call in here um, or a first call, first round to Frank Solich. I think that's going to be awesome. Uh, and I'm glad that they are doing that. Number four, UCLA has hired Kenny Matalolo. He was the winningest head coach in the history of the Naval Academy. And he was fired at his locker after they lost in overtime to Army in the Army-Navy game. Um he is hired as the director of leadership. So it's essentially sounds very much like an advisory role. And he is someone who is very well respected in college football. His son is a GA on the UCLA staff. And um, this is a, a program and a coach in Chip Kelly who really, you know, respect Navy and, and respect Ken Niamatololo. And I, I think it's cool. I'm glad he's still going to be around the college game somewhere. And I, I feel like this role and this type of, um, you know, job description make a lot of sense for someone who has had such a great and sterling reputation for so long at Navy. Yeah, it's good to see Niamatololo still in college football. Uh, if this seemed random to you, Understand that Chip Kelly loves Navy football. He spent a week there after he got fired by the 49ers. Uh, he's always been in contact w- with Niamatololo about different things. There were, when, when Chip Kelly was out of work, people wondered if he would take a service academy job or something like that. So he has always had a long uh, respect and admiration for that. So bringing Niamatololo onto the staff uh, really makes perfect sense. He, he's one of the leading minds when it comes to run game offense type of stuff. So I'm, I'm sure we'll see some of that in, in the UCLA offense, not that they'll be running the triple option or anything, but um, seems like a, a big move for everybody. And Niamatololo is now about halfway closer to home uh, in Hawaii. So that'll be a little bit easier trip uh, when he goes back. Number five, this one is, is a bit random, but I wanted to just kind of bring this up because it could become a thing down the road. Endeavor the talent agency media company is looking into selling IMG Academy. This was first reported by Sportico last week. Uh, IMG Academy, you probably have heard about it. The, the football and basketball teams are among the best in the country. They get they basically recruit kids from across the country to come play high school. Uh, football, basketball, tennis, other sports, and travel the country. Uh, and it's basically an athletic campus high school. Uh, it's unclear who could buy it or what it could be worth, but I found this also interesting because a few days after this comes out in Sportico, Endeavor buys WWE to merge it with UFC and to create their own spinoff fighting company. But following that acquisition, Endeavor's got a lot of long-term debt, and more and more people suspect they could be offloading some 
non-core businesses such as IMG to help with the debt. Now, Endeavor has turned down offers for IMG in recent years, uh, so it may be on the move again. I don't. It, it could have an impact on high school football, depending on who buys it and what happens next, but uh, kind of the early stages of something in here I just kind of wanted to put out there. Yeah, for, for, for sure. Um, something to keep an eye on. And, and honestly, all of these relationships and who's interested in what in terms of sports and leagues and all these different relationships uh, end up mattering, as especially as sports fans have become more and more in tune to what different media companies and consultancy companies are or are not doing, especially in college sports, as we continue to wait here for the Pac-12 media deal, which is still not here as we're recording this in the first week of April. Okay, so Chris, we, we talked about this a little bit off the top, but I want to get into this. We'll, we'll put it in our happy hour segment because I do think Enough people think that it's a good idea, including Hugh Freeze and Trent Dilfer. So this is the part of the show we talk about something that we're excited about or other people are excited about. It's this idea of spring games as true scrimmages. Now, I see, I totally see why Hugh Freeze and Trent Dilfer would support this. It feels like every year there's always at least one coach that says, this is something we should be doing. The NFL does practices, joint practices, you know, our guys get tired of, of repping against ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. We could learn something from this. But it still has not happened. And you mentioned that it's against the rules. So why hasn't this changed? Why, if this is such a good idea, should we have already experienced it by now? So this is it's interesting because a lot of other sports do this. The NFL does joint practices between teams. High schools can scrimmage each other in the spring. College basketball does these before the season. You know, you'll always hear uh, there'll be a leak of how some player performed in a you know a Michigan State Gonzaga game that's basically secret behind closed doors type of stuff. It's it's an opportunity for teams to kind of get into to shape. Like I said, Division Two passed a rule this year to allow it uh, beginning next year moving forward. So it. It is something you see a lot of different places. And I like the idea, like as a fan, yeah, it'd it'd be fun to watch. It'd be a lot more fun to watch than a normal spring practice. But I am skeptical that this will happen for a few reasons. One, we talk all the time about, you know, college football contacts, basically opportunities for players to get hit. And if you're adding what is essentially another game on the entire year, that can be a tough sell. Now, I'm not saying... Hugh Freeze made a point where he said the the injury, the rate of injury in a game versus a practice drops like 50% in a game. So that's an important point there. It it may actually be safer, but it's easy to see this as, oh, college football is just adding yet another game onto the players. The other thing is, Unlike the college basketball scrimmages, this will certainly be on TV. This would be made to be on TV. This isn't a joint practice. This is a game. And so it's another opportunity where players are, are kind of out and in, in, in doing stuff. And coaches are going to feel pressure to win in those situations. Like, at, at, what, at what point do you go past, oh, we're just practicing, trying to get better to, oh, whoops, Auburn just lost to UAB, and now people are really mad at you, Freeze. Like, the competitive juices are going to come out if it's on TV versus if it's a closed or not on television type of thing. So I'm, I am 
skeptical this will happen, but I understand why they want to do it. What do you think? I think the point you made about the exposures is a very valid one, especially as we're you know, expanding the playoff and we saw rule changes around this just to even cut like a handful of plays out of games this year for each team. So that that can't be, you know, kind of overstated at that point, the health and safety point. But I also think back about why teams and leagues are popping up about trying to put football in this spring space. XFL, USFL, like they've been trying to find time in the calendar year to play football because there's a gap here. And I mean, like if you think about the spring spring games that are happening now, like what what are the ones people are going to even remotely pay attention to? Because so many of them, it is just a practice or a run through or whatever, or they just like sign autographs at the end or whatever it might look like. But I mean, Colorado, everyone's interested in that. They've, they've selling tens of thousands of tickets to it. It's going to be broadcast. But, like, no one else is going to be excited about any other spring game, right? I mean, maybe if there's a quarterback you want to see and you want to see him get a couple throws in. But, like, I, I just – I do feel like there is an opportunity to break through a little bit. Or maybe, again, like, it's a one-off thing and two schools are willing to risk, you know, the injury risk and whatever else. But – I mean, there is a need or a want for football this time of year. It's why people consume so much pre-draft content and have given these other leagues a chance, right? I mean, people are people would watch if there was a true scrimmage, real game setting, I think. Yeah, I mean, spring games exist as fan events. I mean, if it was up to coaches, they would just have another full scrimmage, you know, do what you normally do. The point is... Get the community involved, maybe get it on TV, that type of situation. So if you're moving from that to a scrimmage, it may not be that much of a difference to coaches. You, you mentioned something earlier, and there's kind of two other points that, that are interesting to me. One, the FCS group of five buy games that we get, you know, when you go to Georgia or Alabama or whoever to get your butt kicked, you're getting a million five to lose that game. If you're If you're getting that for the spring game, would you get it? Would you not get it during the regular season? Would it change how we schedule the regular season? Would schools not be willing to pay another million, million five uh, well, for a game like well, that? Well, but wouldn't it be better to get that type of game now and not get like a sixty to seven game in September? Like, well, that's the thing. You you probably wouldn't get the same amount because it's not you're not selling out the stadium type of deal. Where you're probably not making as much if you're the home team, so maybe you don't pay as much. Um, but I, I don't know, or, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you keep the FCS game anyway, and, and you're getting two paychecks in a year. I, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's an interesting question because I feel like that part always comes up, especially when we see some of those lopsided games. Is like, well, could you move these games to the spring? First of all, again, if you're going to play a real scrimmage in front of people, like not a closed-door scrimmage like college basketball does or whatever, but even then the information still gets out, like you have to ramp up and prepare like a game because if Mm -hmm. you don't play well people will be not pleased and it will add you know a layer to the entire offseason if you're the better team and you're supposed to just dominate this game and you don't but I even think that on the flip side if it's an FCS team in state let's say because you want to keep the money flowing in state and, and you're supporting their athletic department by paying them to come play this game you still could potentially the same problem that you would with a group of five program which would be what if people see your best players that you found 
that you developed and then just immediately are like, hey, get in the portal, get in the portal. Like, we'll grab you. Yep. Yep. Because guess what? The portal opens on April 15th this year. That's right in the middle or toward the end of spring practice for a lot of teams. So uh, that's one thing you don't want to do. That's one thing FCS teams were very worried about in spring 2021 when they played a spring season was, hey, everybody's going to – coaches are not busy with their teams. They're going to see our best players. They're going to scout our best players. And because you have that second portal season where it comes post-spring for teams, that's the other concern is if you have a really good player who shows out against Michigan in some spring scrimmage and suddenly everybody's like, hey, we should try to grab that kid. Maybe we didn't notice him before, but now we should. So – in simple, it'd be a lot of fun to watch as a fan, but I think there's a lot of things around it that may not garner the support to make a change like Division Two did. Okay, let's switch gears into our other topic for happy hour today. And this is a fun one. You came up with this because we've been having this argument all week about UConn, basketball, men's basketball. Are they a blue blood? Because now they've won five national titles since 1999. They've done it with three different coaches. And it's on the heels of a lot of people talking about the men's Final Four as one without Blue Bloods, without Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, those types of schools. But you have UConn. You did have three first-time participants in the men's Final Four, but you did have UConn. I think part of it came from the fact that UConn, each of the last now three times they've won the title, weren't really talked about as national title teams coming in I mean they they certainly the last two times were not the best team in college basketball and they got on a tear and they had great guards and that's you know Kemba it's Shabazz Napier it's those guys and then in this case they had a lull for about three weeks in the middle of the season because in the early part of the season we thought they were this team we thought they could be dominant and at the end of the season they certainly were dominant and they blitzed through the NCAA tournament but I think it's in part because of the way that we were thinking about them and the season as a whole that we didn't kind of put them in that echelon. And I also think it kind of snuck up on people that they've won this many titles since 1999 and with different coaches. So your question is, are there other maybe should be blue bloods that we should kind of think about the same way that we now think about UConn? Because I do think you have to call UConn a blue blood. That's I don't know. I like I couldn't I couldn't make the determination if they are or aren't. And I think LSU is in that same LSU football is in that same boat. That was kind of the the idea for the for the question here is is LSU football a blue blood or is it kind of in that UConn spot? Because like UConn, they've won five titles in 25 years. They've also missed the tournament nine times in that span. So it's it's basically been boomer bust. LSU three national championships since 2003 with three different coaches. And in that span, they finished unranked four times, and they finished ranked lower in the final AP poll than their preseason ranking 12 times since 20, 2003. The, the lows are not as low as UConn basketball have been. But it's a, it's a program that keeps popping up once in a while, winning a national championship with a new coach. And it's like, are they a blue blood? Now, now let me list some schools here, the ones I think we all agree are blue bloods, and tell me if you agree. Alabama. Yes. Notre Dame. Yes. Ohio State. Yes. Oklahoma. Yes. Texas. Hmm. It's a close one. That's I, a close I, I, one. I, I, it's a close one. Michigan. Yes. Winningest team, winningest team ever. USC. Yes. 
I think I would agree with all of those. Texas is tough because, like, nationally they aren't that great, but we still we, – it's, it's weird. Like, Texas is almost like Indiana basketball. It's like we think of them as a blue blood, even if they haven't actually accomplished anything near the other blue bloods have. I think that's fair. I, w- I would maybe put them – slightly below the others or in a slight category below it's also interesting like just to flip it back to the basketball conversation because I feel like maybe Texas applies football wise but like there have been people in the college basketball world arguing that like UCLA isn't a blue blood in men's basketball right now just because all of those titles with John Wooden were so long ago or whatever right that, like that's that, not recent that's an a- that's a Nebraska football argument. Although UCLA has been better more recently in basketball, but that's a similar deal where all of your accomplishments. I think I think the history are, are matters. It, yeah, but I think that stuff matters because it's the reason that when you become relevant again, everyone immediately cares because you have all of this history. Exactly. That's what it is. Is that if you win, if you're winning, is there suddenly a lot more interest in you? And that is the case with Notre Dame. Even if you don't, hey, even if you think they've been embarrassed in the playoffs stage, when Notre Dame is good, people who don't normally watch college football as much are watching college football, and and that's where it kind of comes in. The, the other options, I think, right on the border here between blue blood or not, are LSU, as we said, Georgia, coming off two straight national championships. Are they in blue blood territory yet, or is the recent success not enough to be a blue blood? I say no. I say Georgia's not a blue blood yet. I think we need a couple more years just because I think it does need to be over, you know, a certain period of time. Because, like, you can have a conversation about are you a current dynasty without necessarily becoming, like, a a blue blood in the history of the sport yet. Whereas, like, again, Gonzaga is now a blue blood in men's basketball despite not having won a title. I stand by Hmm. that. Because that's interesting. Made, I guess I would I would say no, but I said well, they've I said made I was they've made so many elite eights. They're a tournament mainstay. They you know like played for titles. I don't know. I would consider them a blue blood. I think I think that when you think about the great programs in college basketball, and now that they've done it for twenty years, I think you put them in that category. That's interesting. I because like Clemson, like not not quite the same, but like Clemson is kind of like that where the, they've been really good for the past decade plus. I don't think I'd put them in blue blood territory. Florida State's an interesting one. Long history under Bobby Bowden of success, but not much before that. And now they're kind of like, okay again. Would you consider Florida State to be a blue blood? To me, blue blood, Here, here here's my definition of, of blue blood. If like at any time in the past, like, five decades somebody mentioned your school name it's it felt like a big deal like if you mentioned florida state in the 80s that is that is but that is a very vague definition and then you're saying like you're not sure gonzaga would count as a blue blood in men's basketball right i wouldn't i wouldn't consider gonzaga right but like what are you saying if someone mentions you it's a big deal like gonzaga has been one of the most dominant teams in college basketball so what are you saying? Like you just you won national titles or, you know, you've had all Americans or like what is you, you have to be more specific for me. To me, it's, it's in. So like my definition for dynasty is is three titles in a five year span. That's dynasty to me, but that's different than blue blood. Blue blood to me is like over decades 
you are cons- you are considered one of the top programs. So at any point in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, if someone said, oh, Florida State, you oh, Florida State, like that's a really good program. If you said Florida State now, it's not, it doesn't hit quite the same. That's why I don't think Florida State's quite there. E- that's why like Alabama, Notre they, Dame, Ohio they are State. A blue, they, they count. They're a blue blood. Florida State Who? football. Flo- you think so? Blood. Okay. You, you, I've got a much stricter definition, I think. I've just Alabama, think Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Michigan, USC have been really good for decades. I think it is – you you know it when you see it. Like, it's the teams wait, that Wait, 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 wait. You just told me you, – you just told me – you said I was too vague. Now you're saying – now you're saying you know it when you, you, you know it when you see it? <laughs> well, I'm saying you have been inconsistent on how you're defining it. I'm saying it as – you are like that's why I Gonzaga is. You said that I don't uh, that you don't agree with that. My standard is much yeah, more loose. We can disagree. It's, it's these yeah. are the programs that again I, I think if you ask this question like, and I know some fans hate thinking about things this way or they hate when the media says like oh it's better when so and so is good. Those are the yep. blue bloods that there is enough history yes. with those programs that the sport is better when they are good. Florida State is one of them. That that's that's a good point. The way you put it at the yep. end there, that's a I'm fair correct. point for Florida State. I don't think I would – I don't – if Florida State, like, turns it around in the next, like, two or three years and is in the playoff and is, like, in the mix and they're, like, back, basically, like uh, – here, here's another definition. If we make jokes about you being back, are you a blue blood? Your Texases, your Miamis, uh, schools like yes. that. Because to be, to be back, yes. you're back to something that people remember. Yes. I think that's yep. another good way to put it too. I don't, I don't think I would put LSU as a blue blood. Would you? I I don't think so in the same way because of the fluctuations. And mm-hmm. well, and this is so this is also why I think the Yukon conversation snuck up on people. It's the multiple coaches part. I think it's easier to yes. think about sustained success with the same person running it. Yes. And especially State, like, exactly. and I, yeah. And, and so I think like with LSU, that's part of it where, especially when you look at like how quickly things went South for Orgeron, like, I don't, th- I think, th- I, I don't know. It just, it d- doesn't feel the same. And I'll, but I'll say yes to UConn, although it's more titles. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that, you know, that theirs also has some other dynamics, like coming back to the Big East and some of the like mm-hmm. the traditions that comes from like their conference affiliation and things. But I don't know; it just doesn't feel quite the same way with LSU because I think you have some some championship winning coaches in that history where people are like, it's kind of amazing that they won with that head coach instead of the opposite way that we usually talk about programs when like a coach wins a national title. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. Maybe it's a generation thing, too. Like, I'm sure there are people 10, 20 years older than us who would still consider Nebraska to be one of those. Um, or I'm curious what people younger than us would. Maybe they would think Georgia or Clemson are blue bloods. So it's interesting. It's a fun debate when the UConn stuff was happening. I was like, I saw a lot of people comparing UConn basketball to LSU football. So I figured it'd be it'd be a fun thing to talk about. For sure. Um, and, you know, before we go, we always do it on the rocks segment. So we'll we'll keep this one short and sweet. It's time to talk it out. There is friction somewhere in this sport and we are going to help you work through it. This week's rocky relationship is again between the NCAA and the legal system. 
basically just the legal environment that they find themselves in. And I know we've talked about, you know, Congress and we've heard new president Charlie Baker talking about getting help. And basically, you know, there's just a lot of pressure points right now. You have different state laws that people are trying to push, um, amendments to original NIL laws. And that's really how NIL came about, came from the states. Then you also have, again, I mentioned the Johnson lawsuit. That's the hourly wage one. You have the House lawsuit. That's kind of about like back pay for NIL opportunities dating back to 2016. Now you have this one asking for Alston payments, back payments. So you have all of these issues here. And, you know, I, I just think it's, it's just so, so much underscores how on their heels the NCAA is. And, you know, th- no matter how you think about Jeffrey Kessler, because he is uh, he, he is a very quotable lawyer and he has <laughs> taken a lot of shots at the NCAA over the years because he's the one, one challenging them. I thought this was a very interesting quote that he told me the other day. And this is in my article about the the Olsen payments lawsuit. They've been battling in the courts for over a decade. Maybe they should think about settling all these lawsuits and figuring out a settlement. What are the right, figuring out in a settlement, what are the right solutions for the athletes and for themselves to participate in the world going forward instead of just battling all of these cases one by one and losing them and then they have no control at all. And we've, we've talked about this, right? About the idea that you end up letting other people decide your future for you and that's, could be Congress, it could be these courts, but the lack of proactivity has put the NCAA in this situation where they are fighting these things at the 11th hour instead of changing their business model in any way significantly to avoid these challenges. Yes, this is this could be a very, very consequential year for college sports because there are a lot of lawsuits on the table, like you said, many of which will come up this year. So People need to just kind of keep an eye on, on a lot of these things. It feels like it's background noise until it suddenly happens, and then suddenly we have NIL everywhere. So uh, it's you're, you're right, and Andy's made this point too. It's like he wrote a comment about this a couple weeks ago. It's like college sports needs to take control of itself and make the changes instead of asking other people to do it or reacting to courts that are doing it. As he likes to say, quoting Mad Men, that's what the money's for. That's why you're getting paid millions of dollars to lead this sport is to be the one to fix it. The problem is college sports famously reacts incredibly slow to everything. And that can't happen anymore because all, the, all of these changes are going to be forced upon them. So th- it could be something small like back pay for some athletes. It could be something big like athletes are employees. This is all on the table right now. And Congress can't fix all of it, even if you think they can come up with an NIL deal. So... Uh, all of these things, you you wonder if Charlie Baker or somebody or whoever, these people, the commissioners or whoever, will step forward and kind of start to create these changes before they're before they're before they're forced upon them. Right, and so far, a lot of what we've been hearing from Charlie Baker is about congressional help on NIL, and basically when he talks about consumer protections. He's asking for like transparency around the deals and the money that's being made, but it's not exactly, it's not, these are not directly related. Like it's not a wholesale look at the whole business model. And I understand some of these arguments for transparency. I'm usually always arguing for transparency. I think also 
you know, there, there are different things that you can do that would affect, you know, recruiting inducements, which is really the main issue versus true traditional NIL opportunities, which would be like a Caitlin Clark signing a big deal where she's a star and people would want her to be the spokesperson. Right. So there's like a bunch of different layers to all of this. Um, and the idea of like a preemption because you're dealing with different state laws. Like I, I understand all these things, but we still have not really seen a shift in the language about what the NCAA can do itself proactively. And that's the issue. That's where people are like, it's the same old, same old when, even though you have a new president and even though this one seems better at, you know, the messaging and public speaking and all of those things, it's been a long time since we've seen this really reactive approach to all of these and to battling out these 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 lawsuits over a long period of time. A lot of money has been spent in legal fees challenging so much. So much. all of these lawsuits and defending them. Um, and again, so just this this one, the one about the Olsen back payments is against the NCAA and the Power Five conferences. Just another one to keep an eye on. It may be able to move faster because it's directly related to the Olsen ruling, but we'll see. I, I, I think the, the congressional hearing last week that we talked about kind of highlighted because it was a hearing about NIL and they ended up talking about so many things that are not NIL that really had nothing to do with what what they want Congress to do. There are so many issues right now that nobody can quite figure out what the ones are to focus on. And you get an NIL hearing that's talking about things that have nothing to do with, with NIL. It is very fitting. Okay, we are going to wrap things up with our last call. Cheers or jeers. This is the part of the show where something we haven't gotten to yet or something we want to circle back to and we want to celebrate it or we need to get a rant off our chest. It's whatever we might be doing as the bar is closing and we've got a final round of drinks. Chris, I will let you go first. Yes, I was going to say, let me go first because yours is is a bigger and a better one to close on. Mine, I don't know if it's a cheer or a jeer, but it's more pouring one out. And that's for the Simon Fraser Red Leafs, the only NCAA football school in Canada. Well, at least it was. They announced a couple days ago they will drop the football program uh, due to just inability to find a new conference. After 2021, the Great Northwest Conference in Division II stopped sponsoring football. So Simon Fraser joined the Lone Star Conference, which is in Texas. You may, if you've ever looked at a map, seen that Canada and Texas are pretty far apart. Uh, as a result, Simon Fraser was not invited back to the conference in 2022. And they were basically out of Division II conference options at that point because there's only three Division II schools west of Colorado. And this, this uh, program's out west in Canada. Uh, it's a program that dates back to 1965. It spent, uh, played NIA, NAIA football for a long time, became Division II in 2010. Uh, so I just want to pour one out for Simon Fraser. There will no longer be an NCAA football team in Canada. My last call to wrap up the show to wrap up the show is on a storyline that we talked about on our basketball power hour show. It's something I've been asked about all week. We are almost a week removed from the women's final four and we're still talking about it. And yes, it's about Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark. But I don't want to hand ring, you know, the the arguments around everything and the reasons that people reacted and projected so much onto the taunting at the end of the game. But I do want to celebrate trash talk. In general, I'm very pro trash talk. I am an extremely competitive person. 
I have talked about this, but my family once banned me from playing mini golf with them. I have also been banned in the past from playing Monopoly. I am since allowed to play both of these things, although I bet my parents would not voluntarily play a round of mini golf with all of us, me and my two siblings, but extremely competitive person. And I respect trash talkers. I respect people who dish it. I've learned that people who dish it usually can take it. If they can't take it, they have to learn how to take it if they're going to continue to dish it. It is part of sports. It is something that is within deeply competitive people. Some people don't talk trash. Some people do it very poorly and it's funny. But either way, it is part of sports. It's so much a part of sports that we don't even really notice when male athletes do it or we celebrate it. Like Michael Jordan, one of the greatest trash talkers ever. Or Pat Beverly. It's just like part of his personality. But because we saw a woman do it, in the final seconds of a national championship game, seemingly in the direction of another elite trash talker, by the way, people freaked out. And I, I we can talk about the racial dynamics there and, and the, a lot of the different layers that were happening here. But I just want to talk about the gender part. I think people have some sort of idea in their mind that girls, I'm going to say girls because people like to be like, oh, girls basketball. No, these are women. This is women's basketball. But this idea that girls are playing sports and participating and that they're kind of dainty, need a little protecting, they're soft. But these are elite competitors and this is how they get their edge. We saw Caitlin Clark talk trash. We've seen Haley Van Lith at Louisville talk trash. And you know what? Angel Reese has been doing this for a really long time. Her entrance, like her, when they announced the rosters and the starting lineups, she wears a crown. It's a tiara. This is part <laughs> of who she is. She was carrying that thing around with the trophy after the game. This is what makes these athletes great. And so I understand that it's not everyone's cup of tea. And it may not be the best sportsmanship in the world. But I like trash talk. And I think that part of the reason that we're still talking about this women's basketball tournament and why you've seen Angel Reese now has like a million point three Instagram followers. We've seen Caitlin Clark gain a ton of followers, too, is because we actually got to know their whole personalities, that they didn't hold any of that back because they were worried about how it would come across. And I just want to end this with something that Caitlin Clark told me between the game. So before the taunt at the end of the game, but about her, because she talks a lot of trash. She said that she thinks women should be able to, and they should be able to be emotional on the court, just like their counterparts in the men's game. They should be able to be their whole selves. And, that was something that I think resonated with a lot of people and a lot of people are invested in these two people who are going to be the face of women's college basketball. They're all coming. They're both coming back. Hopefully the powers of be somehow schedule an LSU and Iowa game because we will need to see them play each other again. But it resonated with me as someone who is very competitive and who understands what it takes for those types of players to be that good at what they do 
And I don't want them pulling any of that back. I want them to be exactly who they are on the court. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. It resonated with me. Completely agree. I, I, in general, I don't understand when people want their entertainers to be boring. Um, Cause that's what athletes are. Like they're there for our entertainment. That's why it's on TV. It's a, it's a game. It's entertainment. It's not the most important thing in the world. It's, it's to provide competition and entertainment for anybody. And to, to be against trash talking is so just strange to me as if, cause one player does one certain thing. Suddenly your kid is going to be uncontrollable because, and they're going to be doing all kinds of things in their lives or whatever. Like think how much we celebrate Muhammad Ali right now. The things he said, the trash talking he did, and how revered he is right now. And that was not the case back when he was actually boxing. He was facing a lot of these same things, and eventually over time, people came around on it. Like, it's fun. It's cool. I, I don't want everybody to just be so super serious. Like, it's fun when we have characters. It's fun when we have stories. That's, like, the, the point of all of this, you know? <laughs> it, it were, so just I thought that whole thing was completely overblown from the very beginning, um, I want these women to have fun out there and do what they do and do what it takes for them to be the best at what they do. Cause they are the best and they only got to be the best by being who they are. And if you can dish it out, you can take it. That's something we should celebrate. And again, Caitlin Clark really had no issue with it and said that people should stop criticizing no. Angel Reese. So if the person who it was directed at is fine with it, then we all should be able to move on. But I, again, very pro trash talk. I support it. I love that these two phenomenal athletes will be two of the most recognizable college athletes that we have, that they're coming back. And cheers to both of them for saying what they want on the court, for backing it up, for getting their teams all the way to the national championship game. And uh, congrats to, to LSU, because that is something that hasn't been said enough this week, as we've talked about different controversies. But mm -hmm. It was an incredible performance by the LSU Tigers. They deserve that national championship. They deserve that trip to the White House. And I just wanted to cheers them one last time as we wrap up the college basketball season. Power Hour will resume to being full-time about college football starting right now. So Chris and I will be here once a week through the rest of the offseason. College football all the time here on the Andy Staples Show and Friends Feed. That'll do it for this week's Power Hour. For Chris Vanini, I'm Nicole Auerbach, and thanks for listening. Music.